This week we found out that Commonwealth debt is going to exceed $1 trillion. Uh, there was a time when high levels of government debt meant high interest rates. Uh, certainly that was true in the 1970s and the 1980s, and I can assure you I was around then. Uh, even economists, of course, uh, have mixed views on, on what all of this means and uh, where this is going to lead us. Uh, my name is Nick Samios. You've tuned in for Lunch Money. Uh, we're the online and social media home for special situations, workouts and capital raising professionals. Um, so welcome. Uh, I would encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, uh, to give us a like on Facebook or wherever else you might be watching us or on LinkedIn for that matter. Um, now, you're also able to ask us a question on LinkedIn or all of the uh, platforms have facility to ask us a question. And we have a prize for the very best question. It is this lovely lunch money mug. I'm not an economist, uh, but I am a fund manager and an asset-based lender. Uh, and I am intrigued as to what zero interest rates and uh, government largesse, the likes of which we've never seen before, uh, what those things are going to do uh, when it comes to business valuations, uh, asset valuations and uh, corporate finance decision making. And so I have asked along today two special guests to help us uh, uh, take, those, uh, take those issues on. Uh, the first of which is Ian Hyman. G'day, Ian. How are you doing? Ian Hyman is the CEO at Hyman's Valuers and Auctioners. How are you doing, Ian? Extremely well, thanks, Nick. Good to see Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, you've been a guest before, Ian, so uh, thank you very much uh, for coming back. Um, tell me, what is it uh, that's been keeping you busy these last couple of weeks? I understand that uh, your property division is going really well and that you, you're seeing a little bit of a return to the equipment market. Yeah, look, I think development uh, funding, uh, a number of funders have sort of dropped out of the market or cut their uh, capacity back in the April sort of to July period have suddenly bounced back and um, feeling a lot more positive about uh, the market out there. Um, there's obviously little glitches along the way, but certainly I think we're probably almost back to where the OVRs uh, and limits were prior to COVID starting, which is it's a big plus for us. At the, uh, the bottom of the market, um, our fee base in that space was down by 80%. So um, not great. The other thing that's been keeping us uh, also busy, we're starting to see now some insolvency coming through in the SME space and uh, after not having had um, sort of uh, auction disposal type projects over the last four or five months with a couple of exceptions, um, we've had a few come through the door this week, which I expect will be uh, for sale disposals over the next few months in, in manufacturing and other and other spaces. So that's that's sort of indicating now that the, the withdrawal of some of that government support um, is now starting to flow through. Right. Well, that's that is interesting. Um, so, there, the, when you say you're seeing the the appointments taking place this week, or have now taken place, or uh, and, and interestingly, a um, couple of receiverships which we haven't seen for quite some time, um, yeah. and um, uh, and one probably a, a, a VA um, which will happen over the next few days. Uh, but there's also quite a few, you know, small, you know, things like uh, unfortunately uh, in that restaurant cafe uh, trade area, there's uh, that's certainly um, a bit of a bloodbath, unfortunately. I know that uh, early on in COVID, uh, asset prices, you know, you're um, uh, certainly for motor vehicles, trucks, yellow goods, that sort of thing. Those prices were holding up okay. I mean, what are your what are your expectations for uh, for auction? Uh, you know, for, for, for how are these auctions going to go? Look, I think asset prices will hold up quite well. Um, there's uh, a fair amount of money around now for funding of, of, of asset of, of hard assets, and interestingly, because um, sales of assets have fallen over the last sort of six months, there's actually a shortage of of traditional trading stock, and that covers across most areas, not just motor vehicles. So we're seeing very very strong 
motor vehicle prices, particularly for late model uh, vehicles. Um, and uh, the, the, you know, the, the old Toyota barometer, as we like to call it, um, uh, my Toyota price has probably never been stronger. I think if you bought, if you sold a car today, um, uh, and you compare the price to what it was back in uh, March of 2020, um, you'd find the price might be 15 or 20 percent higher than it was back then. There's the government announced this week 100 percent uh, asset write-off, uh, which apparently applies to you know 99 percent of businesses. Are you from the, you, you deal with a lot of equipment financiers? What what's the expectation? What are you hearing? about that everyone is very very excited um uh, and i say that uh, although it's generally not known out in the marketplace i started asking people uh, over the last couple of days since the budget what do they think about this and asset write-off and even quite a number of finance brokers are not aware that it had been extended which i thought was interesting but those that are aware of it are very excited it's going to generate a lot of business for them very good all right well we're, we're very excited as well so uh, Ian, we're just going to pop you back into the waiting room and we're going to bring our next guest, Dr. Paul Mazzola from the University of Wollongong. G'day, Paul. How, how are you going? G'day, Nick. Very well. How are you? Fantastic. We're, we're uh, very privileged to have you along. Now, I met you, uh, Paul, you, um, when you were uh, you were a senior uh, corporate uh, corporate banker. I think it was with the ANZ. Uh, you may have been running corporate finance for, for the ANZ. Many moons ago and had a... Had a wonderful 25-year career in corporate and investment banking, uh, working for foreign banks and in Australia. So, uh, and uh, made a made an interesting transition into academia a number of years ago. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think that anyone who who has the privilege of having you as their their teacher would be, uh, you know, I mean, given given the quality of the experience that you had, there's not many uh, former former uh, senior. Uh, corporate corporate bankers, investment bankers like yourself, uh, kicking around the university circuit. So, so that's fantastic. Now, tell me what's been keeping you busy the last couple of weeks. Well, uh, recently I've just completed and published a paper uh, for an academic journal um, uh, relating to uh, the quality of uh, value, corporate valuations used in takeovers, and that produced some very interesting results. Wow. Um, well, uh, on the good note, and valuers around Australia would be happy to hear that the uh, quality of corporate valuations, which we developed a model to measure, has actually improved significantly since some recent amendments to ASICS regulations. And uh, I guess at the moment I'm working on a new project, uh, some research relating to some of the Hain Royal Commission recommendations uh, uh, in the regulatory sphere. So uh, that's providing some uh, some interesting uh, 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 gist, I guess. Can I ask you? So you're you're going to have some influence on how the recommendations are implemented? Well, it's uh, I'd like to think that uh, Nick. Um, I'm not sure if I'm that influential. However, the research specifically targets the oversight authority, which you might recall um, will be mandated to provide some oversight over APRA and ASIC. Um, and uh, the concerns uh, around that are to prevent what we call regulatory capture. And uh, we're trying to look at the risks uh, and the issues around regulatory capture. Okay. I'm just wondering whether or not the people that uh, knew you so well uh, back in your banking days should uh, be uh, be fearful or, uh, or, or what, but uh, we'll leave that. Listen, you've also been involved uh, with a, a recent, uh, you've recently published a book, Fundamentals of Corporate Finance. It's a textbook. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, I won't take credit for the whole <laughs> the whole book. I was one of several authors and uh, had a bit of fun um, uh, writing that. I've uh, I've done a few now, and uh, this uh, was particularly interesting because um, we've incorporated quite a number of uh, local examples. You know, it's all well and good teaching theory um, to students, but applying that uh, to practice. Uh, and using examples and case studies. And we've also incorporated some uh, interactive uh, modules in the electronic version of the book right. and included some interesting media in there as well. Right, okay. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I was going to ask you, you know, I mean, I studied corporate finance back in the 90s, but I guess uh, you've, got, you've, got local, you've got Australian cases and I guess all the interactivity is, is what's changed in those days. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the traditional um, the traditional models and theory um, haven't changed. We haven't really come up with um, much better theories, except there is uh, interesting work that's going around on behavioural finance and how that impacts on asset markets. So um, that's new, I guess, since we both started. Since we both studied in our undergraduate degrees, but. Um, uh, traditionally, the models are still relatively valid. Yeah, look, my son gave me a book called Behavioural Economics for my birthday. I haven't sort of got to it yet, but is that the sort of stuff you're talking about? That's right, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. Look, uh, we'll just now bring Ian back um, and we'll just start off, um, uh, I guess we'll start off with, uh, with yourself, Paul, just uh, having a look at the way the Reserve Bank has responded uh, you know, to to this COVID crisis, what what do you, what do you what have they done, and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I guess we've uh, we've first of all got to appreciate the severity of the problem that that COVID has has really caused to our economy, and um, and you know uh, we're looking at the biggest uh, contraction since the 1930s. You know, you've uh, seen recently in the uh, budget announcements the the budget deficit. Uh, Creeping up into a couple of hun a couple of hundred billion dollars, government debt, as you mentioned at the introduction, uh, re uh, expected to reach a trillion dollars, which uh, which is a big number, um, particularly in terms as a percentage of GDP. I think it's about fifty uh, percent. Um, so we've got a severe problem. So what what can we do? And I think the government's approach has been uh, relatively sound. Um, in that it is trying to inject liquidity and fund uh, economic activity through its own initiatives. Now, that's what we traditionally call fiscal policy, but we also have a very, very good uh, uh, central bank, the RBA, and they've been doing their bit as well. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that because um, historically we've seen the RBA approach monetary policy through what we call conventional means uh, or conventional monetary policy. But this year's been different, and that is um, given the severity of the crisis, uh, they've also undertaken some what we call unconventional monetary policy, um, which has, um, which has definitely um, augmented their ability to impact on the economy. Um, just briefly, the, the conventional monetary policy, which most of us are aware of, is the way that the RBA influences economic outcomes through the setting of the cash rate target, 
which influences other um, interest rates and therefore can influence economic activity. But that hasn't been enough given where interest rates are. They're, they're at historic lows. So that has become a relatively benign tool for the RBA, which has pushed them to adopt what we call unconventional monetary policy. Is that where they sprinkle money from a helicopter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually an interesting term. That was coined by Milton Friedman and the concept of helicopter money is essentially where um, a government or the central bank drops money into everyone's pockets. Um, the RBA, Philip Lowe from the RBA, uh, clearly came out earlier this year rejecting that as a potential um, tool. Uh, in fact, they, there are various um, what we call unconventional monetary policy initiatives that can be pursued. Apart from the helicopter money, um, the RBA can look at directly financing the government. Um, they've avoided that because of issues of um, independence and appearing to be independent and factually being independent from the government. Rather, they've been... Um, uh, interacting in the uh, in open market operations with the banks and with uh, the commercial sector more generally. Um, then there is the concept of negative interest rates, which some jurisdictions have adopted. For example, uh, Denmark, uh, Sweden and Switzerland. I think Switzerland went down to minus 0.75%. Um, again, Philip Lowe has said that uh, that's not necessarily appropriate for us. And actually, evidence has not really um, suggested that that has been all that effective in a sustainable way. I mean, I understand that uh, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, whatever it's called, has put the Australian banks on notice that they expect their interest rates to go negative and they want to have their, their system set up. I just want to ask Ian, um, I mean, all, all of this, um, all of the, the, the government and the Reserve Bank's policies uh, seem to have reflected perhaps in some interesting outcomes in markets. I mean, for example, used, used car prices, um, you know, it, it, why are they so high? Is it because of, of all of this money that, the, that uh, the government's making available? And is it because, you know, we are near zero interest rates? I mean, what's your take on that? It's more supply and demand. I think we've seen, apart from the, the month of June, where we saw a, a big uptake in new car sales, to take advantage of the instant asset write-off. Um, the, the remaining period from, from April onwards has seen a significant slump in car sales. The flip side of that, uh, obviously, is that for most cars that get purchased, there's a trading. And there simply have not been uh, a lot of traders coming through the system. And most of the car auctions have had very, very significantly reduced volumes. Um, and if you're a used car dealer, for example, you've got to stock your yard. Um, you've got to stock your yard. You, you, you can't just have no cars. <laughs> and that's been a, a big factor in driving car and some truck prices and also some yellow prices as well um, because it's, uh, it's, it's, the stuff is, uh, is not, it's just not coming onto the marketplace. So um, I think uh, we'll see that continue for a little while, but I think next year we'll, uh, we'll see that start to revert to, to normal. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, you're saying that they have to stock their yard. So is there competition between private used car buyers and and dealerships? Uh, absolutely. Originally, uh, in the auction market in particular, uh, the dealers have uh, probably taken on 80 to 90% of, of, of the stock that comes out, out of those uh, markets. 
but through online auctions now and the fact that a lot of auctioneers are offering warranty with with their car sales, they're actually now competing more so than they've ever done before in in acquiring cars that they can then resell to the same sort of people at a higher price. So it's pretty tough out there for used car dealers at the moment. Right. Um, and, and Paul, I mean, that's sort of at the at the micro level. If we're talking about used car prices, uh, you've just done some research into business valuations. Uh, I mean, I've certainly noted. I mean, you know, a little bit of looking around and people that I speak to uh, in the M and A markets, mergers and acquisition markets, is that business valuations are very high. I mean, certainly anyone who thought six months ago when COVID hit that they were going to be snapping up bargains, that's not happening. Um, so, are some of these things that you were talking about a bit earlier about zero interest rates and uh, and you know the the measures that the RBA taking are they are they impacting business valuations? Do you think? Yeah, I think uh, we can't avoid the role that interest rates play in um, valuing equity. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about business valuations, is valuing the shares of a business. Um, and, I mean, I'll leave it up to the listeners to, to decide whether our markets are overvalued. But if, uh, if you look at some, I guess, some of the more uh, crude measures of um, approaches to business valuations, like um, looking at the price-earnings ratios, uh, which analysts do look at, um, we're seeing that at the moment in Australia they've been around 19 to 20 times. Now, if you look at the average of price earnings ratios for the all ordinaries um, since 1987, if we all recall the crash in the stock market crash in 1987, or correction if you want to put it that way, was around 17 and a half times. And pre GFC was around 15.8 times. Uh, So at around 19 to 20 times, you could suggest that the Australian market might be at the overvalued rate. The U.S. market is in a similar way. In fact, some argue that the U.S. market is even more overvalued than the Australian market, where PE ratios of that market have um, fluctuated between 22 and 26 times against their mean uh, of 20 times. So um, we are looking at um, some historic high levels of valuation in terms of price earnings. There's right. another interesting measure which is called the uh, Buffett indicator. Warren Buffett uh, likes a measure where he uh, measures the market based on uh, the value of the total market capitalization divided by GDP of a yeah. country to get a country-specific measure. And also against that measure, the market looks overvalued, where the average over the last 20 years of that measure was 132%. And now it's 103%. I know that when I've spoken to friends that own businesses, I've said to them, look, if there's a listed company that does what you do, I mean, maybe have a look at the multiple. You're not going to get that sort of multiple when you sell your business, but it gives you a guide. I mean, what 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 can you tell us about hurdle rates and multiples when it comes to valuing businesses um, that, that you get involved in, Ian? Well, there is, there is factors affecting privately owned small enterprises compared to listed companies are very, very different and the multiples are, are massively different. Uh, yeah. There's certainly um, a, a desire, desire at the moment, which I think is is driven as much by uh, or the lack of organic growth out there in the market as it is about anything else, about low interest rates or whatever. It's very hard to grow in this marketplace. So if you want to grow your business, 
the best way of doing that is by acquisition. And with rates where they are, you can do that uh, even at the elevated rates they are now. You can still do that in a, in a meaningful way, which will you know, more positively add value to the, the merged assets that you've, you've put together. Um, one of the things I'd say uh, at the moment, we, we saw it sort of prior to 2007, before the GFC, is that basically the business has a pulse at the moment. It's got a revenue, and a, a, you know, it's got a reasonable level of revenue and it's got a, a, a reasonable client base, um, or as I call it, it's got a pulse. Um, basically, it's saleable, and and uh, providing that um, your marketing is appropriate, uh, in most cases you will get a sale of that business for some goodwill component. And and look, there are some sectors of the economy that have been badly affected, but even even financial planners, there are still um, plenty of buyers within the, the financial planning market who are still interested in buying other financial planning practices because scale is what gives you profit. Without scale, right. uh, you're bumping along the bottom all the time. So. There's still, um, well, there's don't, no question multiples are up, but nothing like what we're seeing on the share market. And I, and I can't see that happening in any meaningful way. And that sort of turnover, sort of two to sort of 20 or $30 million turnover, um, it, it's quite small. There's lots of different risk factors there from key man risks, supplier risks, exchange fluctuation risks. But the big businesses have much um, better ability to manage than an SME does. Certainly, as I say, in, in the MA market, uh, I mean, anything anything that sort of gets to that M&A stage where it's got a teaser and an IM, uh, the multiples, you know, they are heavily contested. There's a lot of money chasing acquisitions um, and there's certainly no bargains. I mean, or, 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 or are you seeing it differently? Uh, well, I don't think there are bargains. I think um, um, where, we're, where we're heading, uh, you know, forward, um, one of the big issues at the moment still is finance. I mean, getting... If you're an SME trying to get your bank to finance an acquisition, uh, it's quite difficult. It's it's not just a case of ticking a box and, and putting your hand out. You, you know, you've got to provide. You've also got to fully secure it, uh, back it with security. And for a lot of a lot of business people, are not prepared to or don't want to um, or can't um, uh, actually provide that level of security that's required. So it's still for small businesses who tend to buy other small businesses, uh, it's still quite hard for them to facilitate those acquisitions. Um, but there's a lot of interest. I mean, whenever we advertise a business for sale or we get involved in the sale process, there's no shortage of people that want to transact. But often, you know, it comes back to the quality of information systems, information you can uh, pull out of, you know, out of the company's records. And unfortunately, in most SMEs cases, and I'm sure Paul would support this, the quality of data, and sorry, Nick, and you certainly would see it in, in uh, when you get lending applications, the quality of the data is just appalling. So for, for anyone who's looking to buy a business, you need to be comfortable with the quality information you're reviewing. Um, and if there's any lessons out of it, I think the current environment, if, if your information systems, even if you're distressed, if your information systems are complete, if you can actually show where your strengths are in your business, uh, you're, there's a buyer out there for you and there's, uh, there's, there's cash, there's plenty of cash on it. You were talking about high PE ratios. Uh, a little bit earlier. I'm just wondering whether or not where you have zero interest rates or even potentially negative interest rates, when you talk about the risk-free rate being minus something, do, do we suddenly go into a new universe where all the laws of physics have changed? Or do all the pricing models, you know, your, your, your business valuation models, your capital asset pricing, does all of that still apply? For a long time, economists have always considered zero as the lower bound for interest rates and the Reserve Bank has been no different. Thankfully, they've um, reaffirmed uh, uh, that they will, for the moment, not go to negative interest rates. 
But as you've alluded, uh, interest rates is a fundamental input into the capital asset pricing model. Uh, yep. And um, the risk-free rate has uh, commonly been, uh, the, the sorry, the 10-year government bond rate has commonly been used as the risk-free rate. And we've seen um, that 10-year government bond rate um, reduced significantly from a year ago from where it was around 3% to about 1%. So uh, we're looking at a significant reduction. So as an input into the discount rate for valuation purposes, as the discount rate goes down, the value of shares that is the subject of the model, uh, the value of shares goes up. So as a key input being the risk-free rate goes down, um, from a mathematical point of view, the value of equity goes up. Now, what we're ignoring, however, is the market risk premium, which is another component of the capital asset pricing model. Whilst the market's been um, performing uh, reasonably, reasonably well, um, uh, that has remained relatively stable, I guess. Um, so interest rates, yes, you can say have had a significant input. But from a practical point of view, you can also say that, well, what are the alternative assets for fund managers and the public mm. to invest in? Mm. If bond yields are at historically low levels, um, term deposits, well, who's going to put their money in a term deposit? You won't get rich. Um, so what are the other asset classes? So we're looking at property, we're looking at equities, and whilst yields on equities are, are reasonable, although albeit lower at the moment, um, uh, people are going to and fund managers are going to seriously look at overweighting those kinds of asset classes as opposed to cash. Yeah. So, um, you know, from a practical uh, perspective, it's a chase for returns, and we all know, given the um, uh, liquidity infusion in the market, there's plenty of cash flow flowing around. We've got a superannuation system in Australia that guarantees fund managers and superannuation fund managers a continued supply of funds, and those funds need to find a home. And they're all competing against each other and trying to optimise their returns. So it's no coincidence that in the current very cashed-up economy, that we're seeing the kinds of prices that we're seeing. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, you, you know, you, you talk about the capital asset pricing. I mean, uh, obviously there is a complicated formula, but a simple formula is, you know, earnings divided by rate. Now, if the rate is tending to zero, uh, you know, your, your, your valuation, you know, some, even the smallest number divided by zero is is infinity. So, so but then, you, of course, you qualified that by saying there's the market premium. We do have a question from uh, Deanne Tyndale, and uh, I'll put my reading glasses on and just read that out for our listeners. Uh, Ian, are you expecting more bargains, i.e. lower valuations, in 2021? And that's a very good question. I mean, right now there's earnings, and as we say, we're dividing those earnings by by low hurdle rates. I mean, do you what, what do you what do you think is going to happen in 2021? Well, I think there's two things to separate. I think we are, without question, going to see a significant increase in insolvency rates uh, next year. Um, but that doesn't necessarily there'll be an immediate impact on, on, on the sale of businesses. So I think um, while rates remain where they are, any, any sustainable business, is, is, there, is going to be, there are going to be buyers out there, and I don't expect those multiples to change significantly. I think asset prices, hard asset prices like motor cars and trucks and earth moving and 
manufacturing machinery, etc. I think they will certainly be impacted over time by a, what has been a very um, condensed non-insolvency period over the last six months where the normal rate of insolvencies has been slashed. Um, and without there being that further adjustment as a result of COVID, we, we have the catch-up there to do with, plus we've got all of these additional you know, zombie businesses, if I can put in that way, and other businesses that have really struggled through this period that are going to fall over next year. Uh, and some of them, that's already starting now, in my, in my opinion. So that, the moment the reason the price are higher is because there's a shortage of assets. When that flips, then we'll see, obviously, more assets coming out of the market. And I think we'll see what occurred back in, you know, the late 80s where, you know, car prices fell dramatically um, and a number of the, the, the motor vehicle funders had to literally store vehicles in some cases for 12 or 18 months because they couldn't dump them into the market fast enough. Now, who's to know whether that will happen again? But I certainly expect to see price deflation in the hard asset market over the next 12 or 18 months. Deflation. Deflation. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, yeah, well, that's that's an interesting debate at the moment. Okay, uh, again, getting back to the concept of hurdle rates. You know, there was a time when you know people would use just off the bat they'd use a hurdle rate of twenty five percent, even thirty percent for investment making decisions. I mean, where do you think hurdle rates are at the moment, and what's your advice on that? I I'll be honest, I don't have an idea of where they are, and obviously they're industry specific. Um, but they they would still be in that sort of mid to high teens that have to be in that mid to high teens um, uh, range simply because we're still we're still in an economy with um, high and uh, high risks and uncertainty. COVID has introduced that element of um, uncertainty that that um, is quite high. Now, having said that. Um, uh, we don't really know what's going to happen next year. Mm. So that all depends on the outcomes from the vaccine developments and so on. But one interesting thing I looked at just before coming on is the volatility index, the VIX, to see how that was travelling at the moment. And um, uh, the VIX has actually halved in the last couple of months so what that is telling us is that the volatility in the markets, the uncertainty that is inherent in the stock markets, and this is a forward-looking uh, measure, um, has actually come down since the height in March when the markets went a little bit crazy. So although I intuitively feel that there is much higher uncertainty in the markets given the COVID um, crisis, uh, the markets have stabilised somewhat uh, uh, with that forward-looking VIX measure. So uh, hurdle rates, well, you know, I think um, I think they are probably going to stay relatively stable at the moment. I mean, look, it's it's very interesting. I haven't looked at the VIX lately. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a stock market trader, and uh, uh, I didn't realise that it had halved uh, since since its highs. I mean, the the question that I've got is, you know, the stock market. The way it's been performing, and it's been outperforming, uh, certainly. But is that because traders think that, um, that that businesses are going to be maintaining their earnings, or is it because they've just got confidence that uh, central banks around the world are just going to keep uh, keep you know propping up, you know, printing money, slashing interest rates, and as you said, I think they call it Tina. You know, there is no uh, there is uh, no alternative. Look. Um, I guess we can just pop in there just for a second. Um, there, this is this is the other thing. Er, there's a consensus forecast that earnings for next year will be down seventeen percent. 
So if you figure that into the models, it doesn't justify where the market is. So, um, you know, uh, there, there is a virtual, there is a disconnect between what the markets are doing, the fever that the, the markets are operating within, and the fundamentals. And the fundamental, the fundamentals being the earnings, the prospect for continuing earnings at current levels. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess one of my fears is, uh, is, is if there's a contagion effect next year. Like, I, okay, I understand that there's businesses that are performing well right now. And there's, you know, there's there's certain sectors that are going gangbusters, but you know, if if some businesses start to fail in sufficient quantities, you know, when the JobKeeper and when the moratoriums and all that sort of stuff come off, you know, is that going to be uh, an irresistible contagion for for some other uh, some other larger businesses? Look, um, guys, I know this is hard to believe, and I say this every time, uh, but we are actually running out of time. Um, so uh, I'm going to just ask you for some sort of closing closing thoughts, and I'll start with you, Ian. Well, look, uh, I, I think we've got a really interesting period to Christmas. Um, I think that um, we've seen a proliferation of lenders out there in the market, particularly the property market, and I think development has recovered quite strongly. Uh, um, so my view is that over the next uh, 12 or 18 months, that with the government's, the various state government's infrastructure programs, the federal government's infrastructure program, and I think the eternal optimism of our of our developers and the available now availability now of non bank lending into the market, we're going to see quite a strong. I think we're going to see strong growth, um, uh, but the businesses that can't be saved just can't be saved. But I think there will be some very good opportunities over the next uh, twelve eighteen months if you've got your money in the right places to make good money. Well, they say that uh, yeah, wealth is created in uh, recessions and depressions. I guess for the people that have got the cash to take advantage. Um, Paul, closing thoughts. Yeah, look, although the markets have rebounded since the uh, uh, the, the, the tragic uh, crisis in uh, March in the markets, um, I'm still uncertain. I'm sitting on the fence. I'm not sure what's going to happen, and I think that's going to be largely driven by what happens with COVID. It's an international problem. Uh, certain uh, different countries are dealing with it at, uh, differently. Australia however, I'll, uh, I'll say, has dealt with it reasonably well comparatively. The government and the RBA have done their best in managing the impact. And uh, I think uh, generally, uh, or you could argue how the money's been targeted, you could argue that uh, as to if it could have been targeted any better. But at the end of the day, um, fiscal stimulus and accommodative um, monetary stance by the RBA has been the right direction. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Paul Mazzola and Ian Hyman, OAM, I'm not really worthy to be in the presence of either of you, but thank you very, very much uh, for, for joining us today. It's been a really informative and uh, very interesting discussion. So Thanks, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much to our live viewers and thank you to those of you uh, who listen to our, our Audible podcasts. Um, look forward to doing it all again soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Nick.